0: You know, sometimes there are <clears throat> scenes in movies that capture ideas in such a way that are etched in our memories. And one of, the, one of the most clear presentations of idolatry and sinfulness in men and women are in that classic movie, Finding Nemo. <laughs> you remember when the seagulls show up? And the seagulls show up, and no matter what they see, what is their one-word message? Mine. Mine. And one person says it, one seagull says it, and another one's like, mine. And then another one from over here, mine. And all of a sudden, the whole flock, mine, 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 mine. That is a picture of the depravity of man. It's a picture of idolatry. It's a picture of a mind that's set on only what that individual Once, let's move away from the seagulls and move to you and me and the world around us. It's a picture of what we do when we are greedy, which Paul says is covetousness and greed is idolatry. It's a picture of what we do when we collapse in on ourselves and we think only what we want, living to satisfy our wants living as if our glory is what's at stake and not God's glory. And even believers can fall into this. Even you and I can fall into this. And we've been redeemed from it. Our hearts, the unredeemed hearts of men are idol factories, as has been said over and over. And yet we, as believers, can sometimes return and start producing those same idols. We do it out of our will because of our desires, because we lose sight of the glory of God in our life, because we lose sight of what God is doing in the midst of things. And we think sometimes that our world is like the worst world that's ever existed. And I will grant you that some of the things going on in our world might not have happened in many places before. But there have been places throughout history where the world is slouching toward Gomorrah, as one author said many years ago, and everything about their world looks anti-God, and it's happened for time immemorial. We just have our version of it, and our version of it is on the fast track, right? It's the car that's going at top speed and making all the curves without slowing down or braking. And yet God is in control of it all. Isaiah saw this in his day. He saw in his day that, now hear me, not just the world, but God's people capitulated to adult, to idolatry. God's people gave up the pursuit of holiness. God's people gave up trust in their sovereign, God who redeemed them. From Egypt and set their feet on solid ground and gave him his holy lo- gave them his holy law so that they knew how to approach him and what things pleased him and yet immediately they turned away this was Israel's problem throughout their entire existence in the Old Testament was it not and that's God's people And today we can do the same kind, make the same kind of error, the same sinful decisions. And Isaiah wants us to know that even though we live in a world that the wheels have come off and there's no brake that'll stop the vehicle in human terms, that we are still to live trusting in him because he is our refuge. And he is in control of everything. Now we're coming into a portion of Isaiah that holds together... And we're going to cover it in two sermons. We could cover it in four or five, so two is good, right? Um, We're going to cover it in two sermons so that we can get to the bottom of the text. But it all holds together in, when we're in in Isaiah, you can turn there. I'm going to bring us up to speed of where, where we were last week. We're at the end of Isaiah 56. And from Isaiah 56, 9 to the end of chapter 57, verse verse 21, there is this picture of a contrast between a world in rebellion to to Yahweh and a world submitted to him and the consequences of both of them. Now remember, this this is the pinnacle of this little section of scripture in Isaiah because we're still working out the implications of the work of the suffering servant in chapter 53. Remember, the suffering servant has been prophesied, he has come, he has come to die in the place of men, and he, he has come by the will of God to provide life for them But we've also learned that to be in those blessings, one must turn to Christ and believe in the Messiah and not not have our own life in view anymore, but to be submitted to his will, committed to, to what God intends to do. And yet Israel before their deportation into Babylon, Judah before they were sent into Babylon, and then the remnant that comes back out of that still have the same temptations. Are they going to live according to God and His law, or are they going to live according to themselves? Now, in this section of scripture, Isaiah is going to use a lot of language and a lot of that is uncomfortable for us, and a lot of um, I, descriptions of idolatry that are right out of His day. Remember, Isaiah is writing in the 8th century and a little bit into the 7th century BC. But in this section, in the last section of of, um, Isaiah, he has got in his sights, or God has in his sights, those Babylonian, the, the people who are in Babylonian captivity, as they prepare to be released, remember, God is raising up his man, Cyrus, to come and let them go, and and he's, he's speaking directly to their situation, both while they're in captivity and as they're released from captivity. And historically, from the Bible, you remember just a small remnant come home. A small remnant come home to um, obey the Lord and do what he says. And the same challenges are there. And Isaiah is challenging the people of his day in the late 8th and early 7th century B.C. The people 150 years later who are being released from Babylon... And every believer since Christ has come. We all stand under the same challenge. Will we live for God or will we live for ourselves? And when we are saved and we come to Christ and we begin to live with ourselves, our loving Heavenly Father disciplines us, doesn't he? There are consequences to that sin, but he will bring us back to him. And he does it on his terms and in his way. So the warning stands for us. So let us not come to this section of Scripture and say, that's just those Old Testament saints. It doesn't matter to me. If This doesn't have any application to me. Because this could be written yesterday about our world and the sin that is in it. So it speaks to us strong. Remember where we've been in chapter 56, um, the last time we met several weeks ago, so I want to just recap, not in detail, but recap what we learned there. This, in chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, is the ideal Israel, isn't it? This is where God is opening up salvation to all the outcasts. He's opening up salvation to, to the eunuchs and the foreigners, and He's taking all the credit for it, and He talks about what life will be for, for those people because He is sustaining them. That's the ideal. That's what God intends. And beginning in verse 9, we have a short section with Isra- speaking of Israel's leaders, which we can take great knowledge from and understand leaders in every age, and then moving from the leaders to the community, and what the community looks like under false leaders, bad leaders, lazy leaders, leaders who are asleep, leaders who are, leaders who are ignoring the law of God. But next week, and we'll start in verse 13, we'll end up today in verse 13, But that is the transition verse that presents to us not just the family of the evil one, the family of the sorcerers and idolaters, but the family of God, those who are taking refuge in him, those who die peacefully in their sleep that that we'll learn about today. And we learn at the very end of this section, next week's sermon, the recapitulation of the, the phrase that we had at the end of a chapter earlier, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The righteous die in peace, but there is no peace for the wicked. So that kind of sums up where we are, where we've been, where we'll go today, and where we were last week, or where we will be next week. So stand, if you will, as I read our text. We're going to read from Isaiah 56, 9 through fifty-seven thirteen. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs, they cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, who walk in their uprightness. But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent from these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice behind the door of the door behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me you have uncovered your bed you have gone up in, gone up to it you have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them you have loved their bed you have looked on nakedness You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off. You sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, It is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off, a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So let me set the stage a little bit for some of the language in chapter fifty-seven. Remember, we've seen this already. In this is our our fifth attack on idols in Isaiah. There'll still be a couple more. But remember that when the Old Testament talks about idolatry, it all it it often uses sexual terms because idolatry is turning away from God in the same way that someone would commit adultery with their spouse, turning away from them, giving their affections to another. So oftentimes the Bible uses that kind of language to talk about idolatry. And, they, and the Bible will use that language sometimes and speak only of idolatry, but sometimes it speaks of sexual perversions in the midst of idolatry, and we have some of that here. You'll be able to see as we, as we run through the text that there are langui- there's language used to talk just about idolatry, but then there is sexual immorality that is the idolatry that is being attacked. So when we get there, there is some disturbing language, but idolatry is a disturbing sin, And it requires us to be jarred a little bit, to be shaken a little bit, to understand what is happening. Well, in these verses, we observe two consequences of sinful leaders. Two consequences of sinful leaders. In the midst of this, at the beginning of chapter 57 and in verse 13, we're going to see what leads us into next week's sermon of the beauty of God's people and how he blesses them when they trust in him but most of this section is all giving sinful leaders and their consequences. So the first consequence of sinful leaders, sinful leaders leave the community unprotected. They leave the community unprotected. And they do this in two ways. I've summarized these verses in just two statements. They should be protecting watchmen, and by that I mean they should be watchmen that protect I use that as a, as an adjective. They should be protecting watchmen, but instead they're blind, ignorant, silent, asleep, and greedy. Blind, ignorant, silent, asleep, and greedy is what we will see. And then we'll turn to the shepherds in a moment. Look at verse nine. All you beasts of the fields, field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Now, this is Yahweh speaking, inviting the beasts and saying, come. And we might think of this, because we're talking about watchmen, we think of watchmen on the wall, right, looking for those who would come and attack the fortress, and when they see them, they have to discern whether they're good or evil, and then they have to make a decision of how to bring that message to the rest of the city, do you shut the gates and bar the hatches and call the army, or is this a a messenger who who has the feet of good news? But there's more to this. There's more to this watchman than merely seeing the danger. So we have the picture of a physical watchman, but we're in the spiritual realm. That's what's being presented to us. What's the, the beasts that are being called by God are sin that is coming in and invading the camp. Using the same picture of a watchman. And this is telling us that the people... Starting with the leaders, and we'll see it meet out in the people, they've neglected and rejected the law of God. That's what this is meaning. Consider these texts. Leviticus 26 verses 21 and 22. The first two texts are in the blessing and curses section of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You know where I'm talking about where there's a whole list of blessings for obedience and a whole list of curses for disobedience. And this is God making covenant promises to each people. You have agreed that I am your God and you will be my people and that you will obey me. And if you do that, here are all the blessings. Here's what I will do based on the covenant. But if you do not obey me, I will also obey the covenant and be faithful to the covenant. So among those many curses, we read this. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. This is a progressive set of curses. I'll do this and I'm doing it with the intent for you to turn and obey me. But if you don't, I will continue with punishing you. And I will let loose, listen, the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your road shall be deserted. Now these curses, they are the exact opposites of blessings that occurred just verses before. For instance, in verse six of this same chapter, God promises that he will remove the beast from the land. So obey me, I'll remove them. Disobey me, I'll send them. He also promises that he will make them fruitful and multiply them if they obey them. And these verses are exactly the opposite. Consider Deuteronomy 28, 25, and 26. Also, these are also the list of blessings and obedience are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses. Moses is recounting the faithfulness of God, both faithfulness to give blessings with obedience and the curses with disobedience. And he writes that Yahweh said this, Yahweh said, I will heap disasters upon them, I will spend my arrows on them, they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence, I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. So when God calls the beast, he's bringing covenant curses upon them for a specific reason. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 17 turn to 2nd kings 17 so we can see how this actually worked out and see clearly the reasons that god gives his people 2nd kings 17 beginning in verse 14 But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord God. They despised the statutes and his covenant and he made, that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations and were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandment of their God, but walked in customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants and the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Saravayim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of God, of the God of Israel, or they they do not know the, the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of Israel. So all the sins of Israel that led them into captivity, and then even after that, the people did not know the law of God. So what did God do? He sent beasts after them. So we can look at more passages, but I want to tell you that, back, turn back to Isaiah, when God summons the beast, God is summoning covenant curses upon them because they've neglected and do not know and do not want to obey his commands, his law. So that's what sets the stage for all of this. It's not merely just actual beasts coming to the city or beasts representing nations to come and overtake them. We're talking about covenant curses where God is responding to the people who have ignored his commands. Look at verse 10 of chapter 56. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. Now, think of the context here. What should the watchman have been doing if the beasts are being summoned because the law was neglected? The watchman should have been listening for the word of God and warning the people against their sin. Do you see the role of the watchman? And I'll prove this in just a moment that this is exactly what was expected. But they are blind. They're not seeing the enemy. They're without knowledge. They're not listening to the Lord. They don't know what to say. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. So these do- all the way through scripture, dogs are used most often in a pejorative way. I mean, those of us who are dog lovers just kind of cringe at that, but that's the reality of it. The people that were enemies were called dogs. It, it, the curses that came upon people like Jezebel and naboth they, they, they were going to be eaten by dogs. Paul, even in Philippians, warns of those of the circumcision who were trying to sway people away from the gospel. He says, beware the dogs. So this is, throughout Scripture, this is the negative term. But think what they're doing. What does a dog do if it's mean? A dog barks. A dog bites. Come to my house and find out about a barking dog. Our dog barks at everything. This is what dogs do, especially dogs who are supposed to be on watch. And yet, what does the scripture say? They're silent. They cannot bark. They're dreaming. Maybe that word dreaming just refers to sleep. Maybe it means panting. They panting or dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. They like they like to to, to, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. They like to rest instead of do their jobs, but they still have a mighty appetite. Verse eleven, and never have enough. So this is the watchman. These are the men who are supposed to be listening for the voice of God and giving it to the people. And when they saw sin coming into the camp, should have been shouting from the gates to repent of that sin. These are the prophets that should have been warning. Now I want to take you just two places so we can see this work out. Um, Ezekiel chapter three. Turn there with me, Ezekiel chapter three. Go ahead, turn your pages. Not all of you are on smartphones. Ezekiel chapter three, verse 17. I'll start in verse 16, keep our, our paragraph together. Ezekiel 3, verse 16. And at the end of seven days, the word of Yahweh came to me, that is Ezekiel Son of man, I have made you a a watchman. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. That's the job of a watchman. If I say to the wicked, You shall surely die and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So this is just working out the the example. Let me just read another verse Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, you shall die for his sin. He shall die for his sin and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you shall will have delivered your soul. One more place in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1. Ezekiel 33, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that people are not warned. And the sword, be, and the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn away from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. These verses with the watchmen and the beast coming are directly related to God's covenant promises to to bring curses upon his disobedient people. And the watchmen are guilty because they're asleep, the watchmen are dreaming. They're in slumber, and yet they still have a mighty appetite, the verse says. It reminds us of what, of what Paul says about the enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mind set on earthly things. Now that's the leaders, note this, of Judah. It's the leaders of God's people. It's not the pagan leaders. This is the pe- leaders. These are the leaders of God's people. And yet God is not finished with them yet because he also talks about shepherds. They should be protecting shepherds, but instead they are undiscerning, unrepentant, unwise, and unaware. Look in the middle of verse 11. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way. Where have we heard that before? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to go our own way. And if we are ones that do that, we are ones that need the blood of a Savior, do we not? That's the reason that the suffering servant comes. Well, these are carrying this out, the, walking in their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. So they, they are shepherds. They have no understanding. They should be helping the people apply the word, helping the people repent from sin, but they don't have any understanding because they're all seeking their own will, their own way, each of them for their own gain, one and all. Everything they do is for themselves, not for the good of the flock, over whom they are to be the under shepherds for the great shepherd. Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure, Tomorrow will be even better today. They're just undiscerning of the warnings of God. They are so about their own belly and their own satisfaction and pursuing their own desires that they don't even realize that God is bringing the beast to the gate, that God is exercising the covenant curses for their disobedience and the disobedience they're allowing in their people, and they're just undiscerning and oblivious to all of this. And they say, let's just keep doing what we're doing, and tomorrow will be even better than today. Now, we can look at our world around us and we can see leaders in this spot, can't we? They're blind to the word of God. They don't care about the word of God. And yet they're pursuing it as, they're pursuing their own unrighteousness as if it is righteousness, which we will see later on in this text. So we can look on the outside world and say, of course, these are our leaders. They They are supporting things that God is clearly against in his scripture. And then what do we see in the world? What do we see in the nation? Now the nation is just filling the gap that they're allowing. We can see that clearly. But this text is about the church. This text is about God's people asleep on the wall. This text is about God's people with under shepherds who are pursuing their own desires instead of God, who are pursuing the physical side instead of the spiritual side. And we see this in the church around us. We see this in the pastors that fall and the destructions that have been in their churches as, the, as an example of that. We see this in people who are professing Christ. And now, now we may look at their life and their profession and say, well, they really don't know Jesus, but the reality is they're still professing Christ. Some of them are wearing robes and, 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 and the, uh, the garments of, of a priest. And they're, they're advocating for things that God hates. And they're also saying, we want to make room for you to do the same kind of evil. And so when the world looks at them, they say, well, now that's a true Christian. And they're not true Christians. And yet within there, just think of the denominations who are dividing right now over the idea of homosexual marriage, which is not a thing. Okay, it's not a thing. And they're, they're fighting over that. And churches are losing out. Some states, churches are being able to keep their buildings, but in other states, they're not able to keep their building. They've paid for their building, but the hierarchy, the structure keeps their building because they refuse to fear men more than God. They want to fear God. And so this happens within the church, but it can be even more subtle than that, can it? Luke has been teaching, how many weeks did you say we've been at this, 19th lesson? And your sole goal is to get us to understand what? Scripture is sufficient to disciple. It's sufficient to diagnose our own self. It's sufficient to disciple others. We don't need the thoughts of the world. And yet there are so many churches that capitulate to this. So many churches that capitulate to the idea that the scripture is not enough. It's enough in these ways, but not in these ways. Now those churches fall into this. Their watchmen are sleeping on the wall because what is happening is the world and the thought processes in the world and the evil ways of the world are seeping into the church. In Spurgeon's day, he fought what's known as the downgrade controversy. And just think of of being here at the top of a hill and just starting over the edge. Just start over the edge at capitulating. And what's, what's going to happen? The car is going to go down the hill, right? You're going to roll down that hill. You're not going to stop it. And it's, it's at that level. Think of all the, the wokeness that is in, what, what we've termed wokeness, all of the, the, the Marxism that has come into, uh, societal Marxism that have come in. And how many people who are professing the name of Christ are holding hands with them while they try to hold hand with the scripture. And you cannot do that. Amen. It is not... Capable to be done. Because when you hold hands with them, you I don't care if you're even reaching back to hold hands with the scripture, you're letting go. So this happens within the church. This can happen among us. Right here in the Bible Church of Cabot. That your leaders could go to sleep. And you are charged to wake us up. I had a pastor tell me many years ago, long time ago, in the early 90s, all churches lean liberal. If you take your eyes off, if you take your guard down, the church is gonna push to the liberal side of things. It'll be silent and it'll be small at the beginning, but that's the way that it wants to lean. You, as the pastor, have got to hold on to the reins and say, no, we're standing firm on scripture, and you cannot do that in your flesh. That was his message to me. So this is our call, right? We need to recognize what makes a false leader. I want you to just listen, I don't want you to turn here. I think I've turned you to all the passages. But listen to Paul's language in Acts when he talks to the Ephesians' elders. He comes to the Ephesian elders, he's on his way to Rome, and listen to the language he uses. He uses language that's right. I I just can't believe that this text isn't in his mind when he's talking to them. I'm not going to read his whole speech to them. But he said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, To care for, that is to shepherd, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Was he a solid watchman? He was the whole council of God, day and night, admonishing men and women, warning the Ephesians there are going to be beasts out there that try to get in, and there are going to be beasts from among you that rise up, and you must keep watch. So, this is drastically important for us today. And it's not just out there. The warning is to God's people for this. Well, sinful leaders leave the community unprotected. We're now going to turn and see what the community looks like when the leaders are asleep on the wall and, and the shepherds are, are sleeping and drunk and pulling out their own needs and, and just pursuing their own needs. Because the second consequence is sinful leaders bring Yahweh's judgment. Now, we saw that in verse 9. I think I demonstrated that for us, that this is covenant curses brought on by God. It, it could be enemies at the gate that are physical, but when we see all of this, the enemy is sin. Sin has come in, and the watchmen have failed to preach the word of God and call the people to repentance. First, the number of righteous people decreases as they die in peace, but no one cares. Look at verse one. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men, that word is kesed, so covenant faithful men, are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity and enters into peace. Now some of your versions may have this worded differently, but I think the ESV does right here. The righteous one, God takes away, he's giving them peace. And we talk about sometimes as somebody who dies before their time, right? We use that phrase. Nobody dies before their time. Everyone dies when God says, I'm taking you. And for righteous men and women, that is a removal of the evil that's in the world. It is a blessing to be with the Lord and out of this world. Listen, you who are on the older end of the scale, you experience this more now than you did 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, don't you? You understand the blessing it will be when Jesus returns or takes you home because you don't have to fight the evil inside of you or outside of you threatening you all the time. But we die in peace because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. So we die in peace. But here's the reason this is brought right at this place. This is one of the marks of a sinful society. Righteous men die and nobody realizes it. So the number of the righteous diminishes and the number of evil rises. Now we know in our world that oftentimes it's not the number of evil, it's just the revealing of evil, right? So there may be a lot more people with all of these sexual perversions now, but that's just because Romans 1 says that's the judgment of God on people who have worshiped the, crea- the creation rather than the creator, So God is revealing more of them. Were they there beforehand? Probably. Do we see them more clearly now? Yes. And they don't care what the righteous do. In life or death, they don't care. And in our world, we're seeing that, aren't we? We're seeing that the evil ones, they control the seats of power, the seats of education, all the places that, that have influence in the world, and they don't care what the righteous say. This was the, fault of the, the falsehood of the moral majority many years ago, as if they could go sit at the table with the evil ones and just somehow just have some osmosis effect on them. So we live in a world where we see this, but this is a curse against the people because God is taking the righteous out. The influence, his influence of the covenant faithful men and women are being removed and the people don't even notice. Look at verse 2. He enters into peace. This is why I read to you the last verse of next week's sermon as well. There is no what for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. But there are peace. There is peace for the righteous. And he enters that peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So this is the picture of the righteous one. We can go to sleep at night knowing God is in control and he preserves and cares for the righteous ones and if he takes us home we are in peace the whole time and it's a curse on the world because the world doesn't even notice that righteousness is being taken away from them but secondly Yahweh summons the idolaters to the bench for he will not be marked look mocked look at verse 3 but you so here's the opposite talking about the devout ones, the, the covenant faithful ones who, who uh, God takes away out of the world and they enter their rest, but you draw near. So he's summoning them to his bench and now he identifies them. Sons of sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, the adulteress. So he's, he's naming them. Now, who sh- who should he, how should he have identified his people? Sons of God. Israel is my son. And yet God, who looks at his people, says, Because of their sin, you're not my son. You are sons and daughters of sorceresses and offspring of adulterers. And he says, Whom are you mocking in verse 4? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Now that's a rhetorical question. But they're doing it to God, the one who created them, the one who redeemed them. And he's giving this question to say, are you serious? You are mocking me by living in the ways that you do? By pursuing sorcery, which is, which is completely... Um, Commanded against in scripture by, by the adulterer language and the loose woman language. This is this, Here at this point, we're talking about adultery. I mean, idolatry, not adultery in the physical sense at this point. Your idolatry, you're, you have given up on me and you've turned to these idols. And so when you do this, you think this is righteousness. You think this pleases me. It's as if you're turning around and opening your mouth wide and sticking your tongue at me out at me. And we know what that represents when that happens. And God calls them to the bar over this. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? (laughs) Can God be more clear here at what he thinks of what's going on in his people when he calls them sons of sorceress, offspring of adulterer and the loose woman, children of transgression and the offspring of deceit? All of those things mark who they are. Now we turn to what is being said about what they do. You who burn with lust among the oaks, or the terebinth maybe yours says, under every green tree. So this this is beginning to describe those pagan Canaanite worship practices that Israel was involved in, and Isaiah is using this language to say, you're doing it again. It may not look the same as the language Isaiah is using in the 8th century, but you're doing the same thing again. You were going amongst, amongst the trees. That was the place where they went. The, the trees were considered to be fertile. And so if you go and and you, you burn with lust among the oaks, you go and, and you have intimacy under the oak, then that was going to make you fertile because it's by the God of the oak tree, the terebinth. It's by the God of the fertile tree. And you're going there. And what does God say that when I reminded you earlier of the blessings and the curses God said I will make you fruitful and multiply you right but if you don't obey me I will make you not fruitful and multiply and so they're going to these false gods and now we have the actual sexual immorality coming involved in this who slaughter your children in the valleys the middle of verse five under the clefts of rock now this is that giving this this picture of sacrificing their children to Molech actually taking their firstborn children and throwing them off a cliff into a valley or burning them. I even read one description where some of the metal images of Molech would be heated up to this fierce heat, and then they would place the child in the open arms of Molech and let the child burn. And they did this to worship and satisfy, appease Molech. This, this is strong. It happened in the day of Isaiah. and it was, we have even evidence um, beyond the Bible saying it, even, evidence of, of it happening under the reign of Ahaz. And you remember when, A, when um, Isaiah was preaching? Ahaz is one of the reigns of the kings that he preached under. So this is something that was actually happening. The Bible is full of evidence for it and full of condemnation for it. We in our society are doing this, are we not? for our own desires. We don't want children to get in the way, so we abort them. We don't want children to change our lives. We don't want to have the responsibility. We want the freedom to have the sex, but we don't want the responsibility of the fruit of the womb. So we, as idolaters, looking to ourself, looking to ourself and, and trying to satisfy our own wants and needs, sacrifice our children. And there are people that claim the name of Christ who say that that should be the right of a woman. Now hear me say, I am loud already. Hear me say (laughs) loud and clear. This is a sin that is bringing down our nation. This is a sin that is bringing down churches because there are believers who advocate for this right How you can call killing a child a right is beyond me. But this is what we are doing the same things. So to think that Isaiah doesn't have this is why I say they could be written today. It could be written yesterday. This is the scourge that we bear as a nation and as a world and as a church. We should be the ones leading on in repentance for this sin. And yet we still have people among us who are pursuing it. Now hear me say. There may be many sitting right in this room within the sound of my voice on the recording and right in this room who have gone through this. And right now, you're feeling all of that pain. I, I understand that. Because there are consequences to sin. There will be pain for that. I'm not minimizing your pain at all. But the fact that we have pain over sin should never cause us to justify the sin. So we, as a people, even with pain, you may have had an abortion yourself, you may have led a woman to have an abortion, even with our pain, we must trust in the provision of God to satisfy us and overcome our pain and stand against such a scourge as abortion. So I am not trying to take you and do my own version of throwing you off the cliff into the valley. But I want us to stand firm on the word of God in spite of, of past sins. If you've been rescued from any sin in your life you are the first person to be able to stand up and say I was like that but now God has redeemed me through his son Jesus. I've been freed from that and he sustains me through all the pain. But this is that third rail that we can't ever touch and I just want to cut the third rail off. This is where we need to have a strong and mighty and powerful voice. They're being condemned for their, their idolatry when they sacrifice their children. But look at verse 6. Verse 6 kind of changes the feel a little bit. In the first five verses, we have um, first-person uh, singular pronouns and verbs. Now we move to second person. Now we're talking about we move to a higher level, so to speak, not just talk about individuals and their sin, but the marks of the whole nation. That's what we're looking at here. And the picture becomes that, the, that Israel is the mother of all of this idolatry. And that's going to be important for us because we're moving in the next week's sermon to what the family of God looks like. So this is the family of Satan within the sinners, and we're going to see what the family of God looks like next week. But let's continue. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. Now who should be their portion and their lot? According to, to several Psalms, like 16, Psalm sixteen five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You can also find the same teaching in Psalm 73, 26, and 119, and 142, 5. So they're going to the, to the wadis, the place where the, the river would come roaring through, <clears throat> and, and then it would dry up. And when it dried up, they'd be able to see these odd-shaped stones And idolaters don't need much to worship something new. So they go to this place and they worship the stones. They're they're appeasing gods and trying to find their own way through without their own God. And God says, they're your lot, they're your portion. If that's who you're going to worship, that's who you get, the rock. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? Maybe your version says, should I take comfort in these things? The idea here is the only way God takes comfort in these things is to judge, and his judgment is upon them. Remember, he summoned the beasts. and he says, should I relent from my judgment over these things? The people know that he will not relent of his judgment, and yet they keep on. On a high and lofty mountain, notice what we're talking about, we're talking about the valleys. We're talking about the riverbeds. We're talking about the mountains. Everywhere that they can find a place to worship an idol, they're worshiping an idol. It is all-encompassing for the people. On a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Now, this is one of the most notoriously difficult verses in Isaiah, verse 8. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. So nobody's sure what this all means. But what should Israel be thinking about a door and a doorpost? First of all, the blood of the lamb that was on the lentils and the doorpost, right? That they would be spared from the angel of death. But also in Deuteronomy 6, what are they told to do with the the law of God? Write it on their doorposts. So I'm thinking it has something to do with that, but it may have something completely different. I'm not really sure, and since nobody, all the commentators I read who know Hebrew aren't really sure either, I feel okay being not sure, but I know why. Look at the text. For whatever this is referring to, this, this sexual immorality that is done in the name of worship And that happened all throughout Canaanite religion. It happened in the New Testament, in Ephesus, in different places where the the cult of prostitution as part of worship would happen. It's part of idolatry in in gods who are no gods, but we know why. For deserting me, whatever this was, was a desertion of trust in God. Deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. This is both hidden and free and open sexual immorality. And they are engaging it in a way that brings shame upon Yahweh and his people. And in doing that, they cut a covenant. They, they make a covenant with them because you have loved their bed and you have looked on their nakedness. I don't need to put a lot of flesh on this, do you? Do I? Isaiah is being pretty clear and pretty frank here, isn't it? Your sexual immorality in the, in, in, is, is horrible before me, but you're doing it in the worship of other gods. And therefore, I will not, I cannot relent. But look how it continues. It's not only in that realm, it's the idolatry of trusting in human kings as well. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and and sent down even to Sheol. You didn't trust in me, you went to other kings and you brought them gifts, or maybe you prettied yourself up to look wealthier than you actually were. But you're going to them to trust them. Even as far to Sheol, using the language of destruction, Verse 10 says, you were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. (laughs) In other words, the way is difficult to worship these false idols, these kings, and put their trust in them. It takes a lot of effort, but they never really dawned on them, hey, this is pretty useless. All we have to do is trust in our God. It never dawned on them. You never had the wherewithal to say, it is hopeless and worse than that you found new life with your strength and so you were not faint you get the picture here think think of a drug addict who's trying to get their next fix and then they get it and all is well until it wears off that's the picture you should have said this is hopeless i can't receive any blessing from this but instead you get a little bit of a fix And now you are strengthened. You're not faint. Now what has Isaiah already told us about the faint ones? We are the ones who rest, rest in the Lord because the Lord is never faint. If we are faint, we trust in the Lord. He undergirds us like eagle's wings. It is trust in God that makes them not faint. And they get a little tiny fix of their idol and everything is okay again. And God is condemning all of this. This is... This is the evidence that he presents to to them at the bar that they are worthy of his destruction. Yahweh next exposes his people's work as fraudulent and unprofitable because they did not fear or remember him. Look at verse 11. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied? That phrase means that you proved to be a liar and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart. And the broad answer to that is they feared men. They did not trust in their Lord, they did not fear their Lord so they became liars because they're presenting these works as righteous and they did not lay it to heart. In the same way they did not lay it to heart that the righteous were dying. They're not laying it to heart that this is idol worship and God will not be mocked. Here he begins to mock them. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Now here's a warning to us. Just because God is not revealing your sin does not mean he's not going to. Just because you're still living if you have not yet come to Christ for salvation doesn't mean you will live forever. God is patient so that we come to repentance. He's long-suffering in that way. Now, I can say this to us as believers as well. You may be harboring that sin in your heart, and you think you're getting away with it. Well, you never get away with it. God is the one who knows men's hearts, and he will discipline you to conform you into the image and likeness of his son. And he does that through his word, and instead of being the people who think, oh, I'm resting now. Everything's okay because I got away, another, away with it another, another day. Our role when the word reveals our sin is to what? Is to repent. And God has granted us that blessing to repent and return to him and guess what? He will always receive you. But we're not humble enough to do it. So do not presume upon the grace of God that he doesn't care about your sin. Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. What he's saying here, you think that what you're doing is righteous. These are people, and we'll see this in chapter 58, when they're engaged in external fasting while they're sinning against God, and they complain to him. We've been fasting, but you're not hearing us. They think what they're doing pleases God. In the same way when they build the golden calves, they think they're worshiping Yahweh through the calves. And he says, I will reveal them. I will expose them as a fraud, is what he's saying. And they will not profit you. Finally, Yahweh pronounces his verdict. The wicked will trust in idols and not be delivered. But those who take refuge in Yahweh will be delivered to eternal life. Look at verse 13. When you cry out, and they will, let your collection of idols deliver you and that's all the evidence. The valleys, the trees, the mountaintops, the sacrifice of babies, all of that. That's that's your collection of idols. Let them deliver you, but they're nothing. The wind will carry them off. The breath will take them away. In other words, you have no hope. On the day of judgment, I will reveal it as a fraud, and your idols cannot save you. Now, this is where we, we have to make sure that you understand that if you are here this morning outside of Christ, if you're living your life today and you're making decisions and you think tomorrow will be better, but you, you have no care or concern about Christ, you have ne- no care or concern about your sin, this is where you are. Because everything that you're trusting in for whatever you're trying to gain will just be blown away by the breath of God in a moment. Because he is holy, he is just, he is righteous, and he is dealing and will finally and fully deal with sin. And you only have one choice when he deals with sin. Either have Christ in your bench standing up for you, or you have yourself in your own righteousness and you will not stand on that day. He will blow his breath and blow all of the things you're trusting in away. Today is the day that you need to turn to Christ. Look at the last half of the verse. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Now in this spiritual sense and how this is all dealing with the time from Isaiah all the way through this age, we know that this is is the new heaven and new earth. This is our inheritance. This is possessing the land is possessing the new heaven and the new earth. Inheriting my holy mountain is being in the presence of God. God. Remember, that's what it's been in Isaiah all the way through. He resides on the mountain. And all the people come to the mountain, not because it's a rock, but because Yahweh lives there. And his people are there. And they come to to understand what Yahweh thinks. So if you are in 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 the situation today that you've not ever turned to Christ, you need to take refuge in him. You need to repent of your sins because the sins that you're living in right now are the beasts that are overtaking your life. Repent of your sins. That means to turn the other way, walk away from your sins, and turn toward Christ. He's the one who lived and died, and He lived a perfect life without any sin and died on the cross. God raised Him from the dead. He's seated at His right hand, and all who put their faith and trust in Him, take refuge in Him, rest in Him, will have eternal life. And there's no other way. Jesus will not be blown off of the witness stand on the day of judgment, He will be judge. And you need to be in union with him so that he says, That child is mine. I died for their sin. I took your wrath on me so that they would have eternal life. That's the call to you today. And it's the call in Isaiah's day. If we had time to go back into Ezekiel 34, there's this whole list of the sins of the shepherd in Ezekiel 34 how they have just completely neglected justice. They've completely neglected righteousness to care for the poor. They're all about their own selves. It's just another version of what we've read in Isaiah 57. And God says, I will judge you and I will shepherd my sheep. He says, I will gather them from all over the place and I will judge sheep against sheep. I will judge those who are false and those who are true. And at the very end of that, he said, and I will gather them, and I will be their shepherd, and I will set over them my servant David. And that's well after David has lived and died. So the servant David he will set up is Jesus Christ himself, the promised Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is all the imagery that comes in in John chapter 10 when he says that he is the shepherd of his sheep. They know my voice, I know them, they know my voice. So today is the day to turn to the Christ of Isaiah and repent of your sins and trust in him so that you will have eternal life. And for those of us who are already in Christ, my goodness, why are we chasing after idols? when we have the glorious presence and power and sustenance and undergirding of our God, we have the love of his son directed toward us. We have the truth of the scriptures to warn us against this. We have the truth of scriptures that tell us that there is no satisfaction anywhere except in Christ himself. And we knew that at one time because we came to Christ. Let's stop going back down into the basement and presenting our members for sin, presenting our members to the devil for sin. Let's be those people who go out in the midst of this crazy world that is currently under judgment, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and living in such a way that caused people to want to come to the mountain because that's us now. Christ is dwelling in us. We are walking out and he has not taken the righteous out yet because the righteous still have work to do. And you and I get to do that work. Crucifying idols and loving Christ. And we've all lived long enough to know that the idols are liars. So let's not keep going back. Let's take the world, shall we? That's what God's doing. Let's get involved. Father, thank you for your grace and your wisdom, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the truth that binds us together through your spirit. We thank you, Father, that in this life, we don't need to worry about rest. We will rest in the next life. We need to sleep. We need to take care of ourselves. But resting, falling asleep on the watchtower, forgetting and failing to disciple ourselves and others, to warn, to encourage, to undergird, to rescue the perishing from the flame, to to strengthen the weak faith among us, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the the Lord, of you. Let us not forget, Father, that we are always working because you are always working. And in our work, we rest in your sovereign control of everything. So help us to be those people who work until Jesus comes again for your glory and not ours, according to your word and not against it, so that we are the people who rest in you and are reminded day in and day out that ours is eternity with you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.